It's July 4th weekend, right? You guys all ready for tomorrow and celebrations? And we have to remember, though, what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the, the independence that God and the freedom that God has given us to be able to worship, to be able to, to study God's Word, to be able to be here this morning without being worried about someone crashing in and carting us off to jail and um, all, all kinds of wonderful freedoms God has given us. It's a little bittersweet, though, for me. And I, I, I read a lot and listen to a lot of podcasts about politics and things, and I get really angry sometimes. I don't know if anyone else does. The last two weeks, we have been hit hard in, Christian, in the field of Christian liberty. Two Supreme Court decisions. One, not to review a case involving religious liberty of, in the workplace and someone being allowed to exercise their faith and pharmacists dealing with... Um, being forced to stock an abortifacient pill. And the Supreme Court wouldn't even hear that, wouldn't even um, consider that form of religious liberty important enough to discuss. We had another decision with, with Texas that the Supreme Court 5-3 to three, ruled against Texas protecting the lives of the unborn, the human lives of the unborn. And you get angry. We get worried. In California, we have a bill going through that could basically strip the ability of any Christian university and higher education organization from practicing their faith in education, from even integrating faith into their classes, from even being able to say that the president of the university needs to be a Christian. These are things that anger us. And so I, I, I tend to listen to these things, and I get all worked up. And I'm like, what am I going to do? And I write letters to Congress, Congress people, and it doesn't feel like it does anything. And it gets frustrating, and, and it's like, I just don't know what to do in this world. And here we are celebrating July 4th and freedom. And then I come to the text today, and as we've studied First and Second Corinthians, I am reminded that my focus is wrong sometimes. It's okay to get upset about those things. It's okay to take action. But when that becomes consuming, when that becomes overwhelming and distracts from what God would have us do, that's a problem. And we, we come to the church at Corinth and we've talked about the history and today's our last day in 2 Corinthians. And, and so Paul's going to sum up a lot of things. But this is a church that was living in a time where persecution was worse than it is today. Just in case we think this is as bad as it's ever been, it's not. And so Paul's writing to this church in a time that's just before Nero and just before major persecutions are happening. It's already a time where Christians were excluded from the workplace, where you, you couldn't do business if you were a Christian at times, and you, you had to compromise if you had certain business deals. And so Christians had terribly tough choices. And so you'd think we'd get to the end, and Paul would say, rise up against the government. Overthrow them. You can do this. And he doesn't. He says things like, make sure you're right with God. Make sure you're right with each other. Make sure you're living the way God wants you to live. Because in that and in the teaching, it's trust God for the rest. And so we come to the end and we come to a summary today. And, and this is a, a call to action by Paul as, as he says, examine yourself. And, and the, the point of today, and I put it at the top of your notes, the main point of today, examine yourself and make sure you're right with God and right with each other. If you walk out with anything, walk out with that today. Examine yourself. Test yourself. Make sure you're right with God 
make sure you're right with each other. That's Paul's summary for how to live godly lives in an ungodly world. How to live like transformed men and women that are changing the world for him. See, if I'm all concerned about politics and and a political activist and I'm not right with God, who wants that gospel? Really? Who wants it? And I have, I've changed nothing. If I'm, if I'm into, to getting involved in those things and I don't love you and I don't love each other and people look at Christians and say they're actually a bunch of jerks, then what have we accomplished? And so the Holy Spirit says through Paul, let's focus on the important things first. Let's get this right and show the world what it means to be a believer. Show the world what it means to have a different God on the throne than the emperor or than government or secularism. And so that's our summary today. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 13, 1 through 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll walk through what Paul's doing here. And, And Paul's dealing with a church that had sin issues in the church. Worldliness had creeped in that had divisions in the church. And we've talked about that, a a, a church that he's been to twice, the second time to try to correct them, and they basically kicked him out. And and so there is a a challenge here. This church that Paul started, that he loves, was no longer listening to him. There is a brokenness in that relationship. And now 2 Corinthians is all about restoration and coming back together in that relationship. And so we come to the end of the story, to the summary in 2 Corinthians 13. We have four points this morning. All of them go back to examine yourself. Make sure you're right with God and each other. Love God and love others. Let's look at the first four verses. This is the third time I'm coming to you. And we talked about that last week, the different visits. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while I am absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives in the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. First thing that Paul goes to is that sin has to be dealt with. To be right with God, sin must be dealt with and disposed of. It must be gotten rid of. And so Paul here, he just gets right to the point at the end. And we talked about last week, dad's coming home and he says, I'm coming to you. But he gets into a few more specifics that he is coming willing to exercise church discipline. And so he says, this is the third time I'm coming. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, we read that and we're like, okay, that sort of makes sense. That's pretty wise. But they would have understood that very specifically as the formula for proving a case against somebody, for proving an offense, because it's quoting Deuteronomy 19.15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, shall a charge be established. And so when Paul says, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, he's informing them, I'm coming with discipline in mind. 
I'm going to be coming to prove that. In fact, in Matthew 18, when Jesus is talking about church discipline, and, and we'll go there in a minute, he says, you talk to the person alone first, by yourself first, and you confront them. If they don't respond, do you remember what it says? Take two or three witnesses and tell them their offense. It's back to this Deuteronomy principle of proving a point, proving a case, taking people along. And sometimes, you know, you may talk with someone one-on-one and they'll be like, ah, you know what, that sin's okay, don't worry about it. But two or three people come and they say, you know what, we're worried about you. We're worried about your walk with God. We're seeing this in your life and that is not pleasing to God. What are you going to do about it? That has more weight. So that's why in the Matthew passage, it's the second step in church discipline. Here, Paul is saying, that's where we're at. There's a a number of debates about two or three witnesses. What is Paul referring to here? Some think maybe it was his third visit. And so he says, I've warned you, I've warned you, and I've warned you. This is not new, and I've warned you publicly. It could be that. It could be that he also is, is gathering a couple people within the church that are going to be witnesses with him. We don't know which one of those it is, but the point is, is he's following the steps to confront sin, and he's bringing others into the picture. And he's saying, I've, I've followed Scripture. I've done what God has asked us to do, what Jesus has said to do, and so I'm coming. And so in verse 2, he says, I warned those who sinned before and all the others. And that's an interesting phrase, and, and we're spending a little bit of time on this point because this is the heart of of, of this chapter, this portion of this chapter, I warned those who sinned before. Remember, there were people living in immorality, and he had warned those in 1 Corinthians. He had warned those on a severe visit. He warns them again in 2 Corinthians. We had people that were, were causing division and, and tearing the church apart. We had false teachers. Could have been any of those. They say, I've warned those and sinned before. But the next phrase is really interesting. And all the others. And what Paul is doing here is he is painting a picture of corporate responsibility for sin. He is saying it's not, in a, in a church setting, in a church family, it's not just on the person sinning. When we know of sin and it goes unchecked in our midst, we are now all part of that. That sent a little chills down our spine. A yeah, great thing to talk about on a holiday weekend, Right? But to be right with God, sin must be dealt with and disposed of. We must take sin seriously. And so Paul is saying, I'm coming. I'm coming with witnesses. We are going to deal with this. I've warned you that are in sin before. If you're still in sin, I'm going to deal with it. But this is also, he's calling out the church at Corinth saying, you should have. And we know that in 1 Corinthians because he called them out there. He said, you allow this in your midst. And that was dealing with the incest. He says this is a kind of immorality that that even secular people, pagan people don't allow. And you're allowing this and you're even proud of this in your midst? He's calling them out. For us as a church, it's a reminder to be vigilant and on guard about sin. Now this doesn't mean that, that we become, that we go on a witch hunt and we start following each other around with microscopes and I'm going to find some sin in your life because it's really fun to confront you and, and then probably that's on us <laughs> and, and we have some issues that we need to, to confess. But when there is public sin that we know about and it is not dealt with, that is 
grieving to the heart of God. Deeply grieving. It affects a body, a church body, in ways that I don't think we even understand because I think we remove God's blessing on so much of our work when we allow sin to go unchecked. And he brings up Matthew 18, and, and that's a reminder that there's a process. This isn't just going around and accusing people, and, but there's a process. We need to be careful to know it's sin. That's why there, you, you find two or three witnesses. This isn't running around and saying, I don't like the color of dress you're wearing, or I don't like the shirt you're wearing, or I don't like the car you drive. That, those are preference issues. But when we come to Scripture, when it's clearly sin, and we want to be sure of that, we need to be willing to confront it. And so Paul, at the end in his call to action, says, it's time for this to be dealt with. Now we might say, well, God is some killjoy here. He just, he just doesn't want them to have any fun. Sin is damaging. It always is a violation of God's plan for us. And here's the thing. God wants his children to be blessed in his presence. I'm not talking health and wealth, but the joy of being walking with God. And there is nothing like living right before God. There is nothing like it. That joy of sweet fellowship with God, that joy of communion. And God has given us his instructions because this is how he's designed life to work. And so when we violate these instructions, we are telling God, I'm not going to go by your design for how it works. And there are consequences for that. Sin's a whole lot of fun at first sometimes. But it always leads us down a path that is destructive to us. And so when God says deal with sin, what he's really saying is, I want you to have an incredible life in fellowship with me. I want to just be, be, be one with you, to, for you to have an amazing joy of being in my presence. And so let's get rid of the things that stop that. So I warned those who sinned before and all the others. That's past tense. I warned them now while absent. That's, that's the, um, the letter of 2 Corinthians. As I did when I was present in my second visit. So reminding them, he's warned them and warned them and warned them that if I come again, I will not spare them. And that is dad saying, I'm coming and I'm going to discipline you. So deal with it take care of it. Paul still doesn't want to have to come this way as we're going to see. But sin is that important. He goes on in in some verses that may be a little confusing, but the first one is, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. Now keep in mind, remember what the false teachers were saying about Paul? He doesn't speak well. He's sort of just, you know, he's just using you and he's weak and humble. That's not what someone looks like that we want to follow. And so they were seeking proof that Christ was in him. And we know from last week's text, they were seeking signs and wonders and miracles and and flowery speech. They wanted all this. And and so what Paul's saying, and there's a lot of irony in this, he goes, you know what? I am going to show you that Christ speaks through me. I'm coming. I'm going to show it to you. I'm not going to show it through signs and miracles. I'm going to show it by showing you his heart against sin and speaking against the sin in your midst. That's not really what they were looking for. But that's what it looks like for Paul to be speaking Christ's word. And he goes on to explain that 
He is not weak in dealing with you. Christ isn't weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. So if I'm speaking His Word, I have to powerfully come against sin. Then He goes to the cross. For He was crucified in weakness. See, He humbled Himself and became a servant. Being found in fashion as man, He was killed and submitted Himself to death. He was weak by being crucified for us but lives by the power of God. And that's referring to the resurrection there. And so he says, in Christ, we see a weakness. That's how you're even saved. He took your sin on himself, but the power of God, he was raised from the dead. And he's reminding them of the basics here. Reminding them who Jesus is. The power of Christ is going to come out in his teaching. He goes on, says, for we also are weak in Him, but in dealing with you, we will live with Him by the power of God. And in referring to where Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. We're weak with Him. We humble ourselves because repentance has to come stripped away of self. We have to say, I am wrong. I cannot save myself. I need my Jesus. And in in that point of weakness, we become as strong as we will ever be as Christ indwells us and we are saved and we have eternal and then we have eternal life. And so Paul's bringing all that to bear to show how, as he talks with them, his humility, that weakness is not a a point of departure from Christ, but now he's coming with power because sin is that important. It must be dealt with. I think part of him bringing up Christ and the cross is he's bringing up the payment for their sin. And he's reminding them that when we live in sin, when we don't deal with sin in our own lives, when we don't deal with sin in our church family, we are acting in defiance of the cross. That is an affront to Christ. Because he paid his life. He humbled himself completely. He gave his life willingly for us. And when we choose to still sin, it's a slap in the face. And that's a good reminder. It's a good reminder for us to take sin seriously. See, as I, as, I, as, I, as I pastor and as I minister and as I watch culture, I'm seeing such a, a greater divide between our, our lives and our Christianity. And it's disturbing. And, and I, I talk with people that really think it's okay to sin. And, and really think that that doesn't affect their lives. And it's detached somehow because they also really think they're Christians and walking with God. And that's despicable to God. Because if we're in Christ and Christ is in us, that changes how we live. We cannot live as people that accept sin and tolerate sin and are entertained by sin and claim that we are walking with God. I'd rather someone just claim, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to follow God. I don't believe who He is. I don't believe His claims. I don't believe that He wants every part of my life. I'd rather have that than someone that says they're a Christian and says, you know what, that sin in my life's fine. It's okay. Listen to these verses. I think we need to see God's heart about sin. Isaiah 59.2 
but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Psalm 11, 5 and 6. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Hebrews 1, 8 and 9. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. I love that verse because it's, it's lifting up the righteous and God's love for the righteous, but how much he hates wickedness. It's an affront to his character. It's a defiance of his character, of his authority as creator, of his kingship in our lives. Village, if we were to walk right with God, we have to be vigilant about seeing sin and stamping it out and getting rid of it. If we leave sin in our lives, in our church, it will undermine what God is doing. You know, I've, I've joked before, I've, I've talked before about gophers in my backyard. And about a year and a half ago was sort of the end of the gophers. It was awesome. And, and the thing about gophers is they undermine your backyard, right? We talked about this in relationship to sin. Well, a, a month ago, I moved the trampoline. And the trampoline, where it's hidden, where grass has grown up, the entire circle of the trampoline is one giant gopher mound. Where did that come from? But that's how sin works. If we're not vigilant, I wasn't looking for it, and this undermining, this, this junk is coming up. I, I moved the trampoline, and the next week, all the gopher mounds moved to where the trampoline was. So I'm not sure what's going on there. But sin wants to undermine, Satan wants to undermine what we're doing through sin, what we're doing for God, how we're living for God. And he will hide it. He will make it something we don't even notice. We must be on guard. And so Paul here is urging confession. He's urging repentance. He's urging confrontation. But sin must be dealt with and disposed of. As we go through today, because the the text Paul is saying to examine ourselves, I'd like to ask some questions. And of yourself, ask this, have I let sin or have I let a tolerance for sin creep into my life? Is there any area where I've started to be okay with sin? whether it's in my life, in other people's lives, in the entertainment choices I make. We can see God's heart. We can see Paul's response to sin. The summary is examine yourselves. Make sure you're right with God. Next few verses, 5 through 8. Point number 2 in your note is honestly examine yourself to see if you are living like Jesus is in you. Honestly examine yourself to see if you are living like Jesus is in you. And he starts in verse 5, and I wasn't real creative with the point. I just took it out of the wording of the verse. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. And this is the the call to action. And Paul says, we need to do a self-check here, guys. You need to look inside and do some serious introspection and find out, am I compromising in some way? 
And so he actually uses it twice. Examine yourselves, test yourselves. And when we see something repeated in Scripture, that should hone us in to say this is really important. Now, now what's really interesting is what were the Corinthians doing to Paul? They were, they were accusing him, right? Accusing him of all kinds of things. And the wording Paul uses here is, you yourself examine yourself. See what he's doing? He's saying, quit talking about me. Start looking at your own heart. It's reminiscent of Jesus saying, get the log out of your own eye before you try to get the speck out of someone else's eye. And so Paul's saying, let's start with your heart. Examine yourself. See if you're in the faith. And that could be see if you're, you're really a believer. It could be seeing if you're living like a believer. The two actually aren't that different when we understand God's work in our lives. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? And Paul comes back to the heart and soul of how we deal with sin, how we walk right with God. Village, you and I can't defeat sin on our own. We can't. We can't save ourselves. We can't conquer sin on our own. We need the power of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul brought up the resurrection and and the crucifixion in the last section. That's why here he's saying Christ is in you. And we know that because of the power of Christ, because He lives in us, sin can be defeated. By His power, by His strength. And so if we're going to see victory in some of those areas of our lives, it's got to be realizing Christ is in us. It's got to be through that relationship. And so Paul says, check your genuineness. It's interesting when we think of self-evaluation and check yourself. That's a really hard thing to do, isn't it? it, it I, I'm always amazed when teachers say, let's, let's grade your own papers. Like, it's all right. I'm pretty sure it's right. Now, what do they do then? They give you a standard to test it against. Because if you're just testing yourself with no standard, we think we're right. Our mind, a, way, a man's way seems right to himself. And so somehow when Paul says examine yourselves, test yourselves, we need to go to an external source, an external criteria, and that's God's Word. I think of verses like Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. So for the psalmist, his way of of inspecting himself, testing himself, is to ask God to reveal something. Ask God to speak into his life. You know, it's, it's you and I this week in a private time begging God, God, show me if there's sin in my life. Show me where I'm not right with you because I so want to be right with you. And He will. And He will. The Holy Spirit working in us is, is also how we examine ourselves. In John 16, 8, Jesus says, And when He comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You know, when I think of other ways that this is a standard to examine myself, I go to the fruit of the Spirit. The, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is, is what the Spirit should be doing in our lives. And, and so we can just go through the list. How am I doing on love? It, do, would people say I'm a loving person to them? To God? To them? How am I doing on joy? How am I doing on peace? Am I a peacemaker or do I stir things up? 
How am I doing on patience? How often do I lose my cool? That can be a little harder. What about kindness? How many times am I intentional about doing good for others? Gentleness. Power under control. Not weakness. Gentleness. How am I doing at controlling myself? At using what God has given me at the right time in the right way? Self-control. Those things become a great way to examine ourselves. Because if we go through that list and say, man, there's some of those I'm really struggling with, that probably is a, a red flag that says, this is an area to let God have control. This is an area to deal with. This is an area where maybe there's some sin that God wants to take out of your life. The call to action is examine ourselves. And then he asked the question, don't you realize Christ is in you? Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? And and that's a phrase. I'm concerned sometimes that we use Christian phrases so lightly. What does it mean that Christ is in us? We, we live in Christ. Christ is in us. And let me just give you four R words that maybe helps understand this text. This isn't all-inclusive. But um, one of the things Christ in me means is relationship. It's, what we're doing here isn't mere religion. This isn't about putting in our time. This is about God loving us, us loving God, and relationship with Him. A close relationship with the Creator of the world. It's about living for Him because He's created me, because He's in me. So relationship. Second R word. Keep in mind, they're R words, so you have to you know, stretch them a little bit. Resistance. He indwells us to give us strength to resist sin. Get it? Yeah. That's where Paul's going here. You have Christ in you. He gives you the strength to re- combat sin and resist it, to stamp it out of your life and to live for Him. I am so thankful he hasn't left us alone to deal with this. There's there's times that I give my kids a task and I forget that they're kids. I say, hey, go out and mow the lawn or go out and set up the pool or whatever it is. And, And sometimes they just look at me with this dazed look on their face. Like, I have no idea how to do that. And I'll say, you want me to come help you? Yeah, Dad, come help. And, and it changes everything. Now it's gone from something they have no idea how to do to something, oh yeah, we, we got this. Christ is in us. And he says, let's deal with sin in your life. You can't do it on your own. You don't know how, but I can. And so think relationship. Think resistance. Think representation. This comes back to earlier in Second Corinthians. We are ambassadors of Christ. Because Christ is in us, Everything we do represents him. If he stays separate from us, if he stays distant from us, then we don't have that representation. But if we're believers, Christ is is living in us. And what I do reflects on him, represents him. Fourth, our word is reproach. Reproach. If Christ is in me, then he's, he's with me when I sin. And that is a reproach to God. And I, and I add that one in because for me that helps me realize when I blow it, when I'm choosing to sin, I am defying the God who is in me. 
and dragging him through that in a way, in a way. How are we doing it living like Christ is in us? How are we doing it self-examination? One other way to examine yourself, those that are married, ask your spouse. They know. I'm just saying. My wife knows where I'm not walking with God. She knows where I'm not reflecting Christ. She may be afraid to tell me. Ask. And then don't get defensive with the answer. Say, sweetie, where have I not lived like Jesus today? Now we're meddling. Now now we're getting down to some things that actually might work. It's hard. And then they ask the same thing. But are we serious about getting rid of sin and living for God? This is Paul's summary to his book to the Corinthians. It says, examine yourself. He goes on, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And he's challenging them. If you're not believers, then you're not going to live like Christ is in you. Unbelievers tend to act like unbelievers. So test yourselves. He goes on in verse 6. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. Sort of an interesting statement. What does that mean? And are they examining him? But, but probably it's saying if they realize they're walking with God, then that validates Paul's ministry. Because Paul's the one that led them to the Lord. And they're following Paul's, Paul's instruction of how to walk with God. And so if they're walking with God and get rid of the sin in their lives, they'll realize Paul has been above board. And then we see Paul's ministry heart. But we pray to God that you might not do wrong. Not that, that we may appear to have met the test. It's not about Paul puffing himself up. Yeah, I planted a perfect church over here. But that you may do what is right. Though we may seem to have failed. His heart is he just wants them to walk with God. And in verse 8, For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. And this is a, a, another statement that it's, you sort of have to chew around a little bit to understand, but... A number of the scholars, I love how they explain it. He's saying, if I come and you're living in truth, I'm not going to do anything against you. If you've dealt with sin, we're good. He's not promising that he's going to come and discipline them if they're living right. He's saying, deal with it so I don't have to. But I will if I have to. Third point. We see Paul's heart still. A right heart for God seeks restoration and building up. A right heart for God seeks restoration and building up. We get this from Paul's prayer for the Corinthians because his prayer shows us a little bit of what we should be pursuing. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong, in verse 9. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of authority, that the Lord has given me for building up and not tearing down. He doesn't want to come and have to tear them apart for their sin. He will because that's the only way to get to the building up. But the goal is restoration and building up. This is, this is an incredible concept in a verse, in a passage where he's calling them to action about sin. Because he's saying, this isn't the end of the line. This isn't the end of hope. God can restore hearts. 
He can restore us from sin. There is no sin in your heart that God can't restore. You get that? There is no sin in your heart. There is no sin in your past. There is nothing that you have done that God can't restore through the power of the cross. And that is the hope in this passage. Like It's been sort of a downer until now. Examine yourself. Watch out for sin. And Paul goes to restoration and says, oh, Jesus can handle that. Your walk with God can handle that. He can restore you. When you think of restoration, and think, think of restoring cars. John, are you here? What does it mean to restore a car? Return it to its original form, right? You know, there was this, this late night infomercial that you could wipe this stuff on any painted surface and it would restore it to its original color. I did not order 10 of them. But it looked really good because it was, it was restoring things to their original state. Now think about when Paul says, the aim for you is to be restored. I want you to re- be restored to a relationship with God, to a walk with God, to a sweetness of that relationship. So a right heart for God seeks restoration. When we repent, when we come to God and ask forgiveness, we know that He deals with it and forgives and goes the next step to reconcile us and restore us. This is good news. And that's Paul's prayer. All of those things are under have a right relationship with God. If you remember the main point of the morning, examine yourself, make sure you have a right relationship with God and a right relationship with others. The last few verses, the next few verses, talk about a right relationship with each other. Point number four in your notes, choose to build good community. Don't just hope it happens. Choose to build good community. Choose to be in relationships with each other that love each other. Don't just hope it happens. In verse 11, we get five commands here. And there's different ways of writing in Greek. There's things that that are just statements. These are commands. These are things we choose to do, we, we are to do and obey. Finally, brothers, the first one is rejoice. And and I just love that he still calls them brothers. Through all the problems, he's like, I love you, man. And the first command is to rejoice. If you have NIV, it translates it goodbye. Some say it was like, oh, yeah, rejoice, brother, and a way of saying goodbye. But the way Paul uses it, it, it's so much more. And it's to be glad to be in a state of rejoicing because of what God has done. It's a choice. And if we're to build good community, we've got to be people that rejoice. No matter what's happening, no matter what trials we're we're at, can we rejoice around each other? Or are we going to be Eeyores around each other? They both affect community, right? One positively, one extremely negatively, because they're both contagious. And so Paul says, finally, brothers, rejoice. It's a command. Second command aim for restoration. Aim for restoration. And I I just talked about that word for restoration, but it means to put things in order. Get your house straight. John, you guys just did a bunch of work on your house, right? There was a point where you got all the furniture straight and and together, right? In fact, you posted pictures of it because it was like, ah, that's what he's saying. Get your life straight. Get your relationship with God straight. And some have said, well, is he talking about restoration with God or with others here? Yes. Yes. 
It's actually, he's using it transitionally because he is talking about relationship with God, but the whole context of this verse is community. And when we get this relationship right, we've talked about this. When we get this relationship right, this relationship falls into place. Aim for restoration. Be restored with each other. Don't let things simmer. It destroys the body of Christ. It destroys your heart. Aim for restoration. Next command, comfort one another. Be an encourager. If we're going to follow God's word here and follow this command, it means when we get together, we should find encouraging things to say about each other. Comfort one another. Encourage one another. It also means we need to allow ourselves to be encouraged. That's hard. I I love to, to give encouragement. I really don't like to receive it sometimes. But community both have to happen. I'm to help others. I'm to let others help me. That strips away our independence, our our, um, walls that we put up. Next command, agree with one another. This is a challenging one because does that mean we all have to agree on everything? Let's talk paint colors. No. No. It's, it literally is saying, be of the same mind. And it's, it picture the, the important things, the essentials. Can we agree on those? And can we not be disagreeable people on the other things? It's, it's the same word that's used in Romans twelve sixteen. live in harmony with one another. So it's this idea of being in harmony, having, we, we have our opinions, but coming together on the things that matter and not disagreeing on the things that don't. So in Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. The word also means, which I think is part of the meaning here, it also means to give careful consideration to another. So to live in agreement with somebody is more in an agreeable way. To give careful consideration to another. Do I consider how the words I speak might be received before I say them? Well, sometimes I just say them. And then we get the foot out of the mouth later. But agreeing with one another, living in an agreeable way with one another would, would be to be careful about that. To think of my actions and how that affects others. To be considerate of others. The last command there is live in peace. Don't stir up trouble, which usually we stir up because we're standing up for self, standing up for what I want, what I think should be done. Live in peace. Let things go. And Paul's writing this to a church that was deeply divided at times. And so he says, make sure you're right with God. And now he says, make sure you're right with each other. And here's how you're going to choose to do that, by obeying. Not just letting it happen. It means if there's something that I know one of you has against me or that I have against you, we deal with it. We talk about it. We, we ask forgiveness, we let it go, and we move on. See, I, I really only have two, two options as a believer when someone offends me. I either go to them and we talk about it and work it out, or I let it go and never bring it up again. Those are my only two biblical options. And that's what it looks like to be in a good community. The end of the verse says, Paul says, And the God of love and peace will be with you. Interesting. 
because he's given these five commands and he says, if you do these, the God of love and peace will be with you. I've said often, if we get this relationship right, this relationship will fall into place. Here's the other side of that. If we're struggling with this relationship, then our relationship with God will also be distant. You can't divorce the two. I can't love God and hate his people and hate his church. I want the God of love and peace to be with me. He goes on in 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. Let's put this one into practice right now. No, just kidding. Uh, Thought of kiss cam, you know. Um, (laughs) I'm always nervous when those come up at the stadium. (laughs) Again, we've talked about this. Keep in mind the culture. In their culture, Middle Eastern culture still today does this. If you go over there, they'll they'll kiss on each cheek. or um, It it was a way of greeting, of warmly greeting, but it, it meant so much more because it means there's nothing between us. And so, yes, for us, maybe it's a great handshake. No wimpy handshakes, okay? Good handshakes. And maybe if, you're, if you like to hug, maybe it's a hug. But not just surface stuff. It's saying there's nothing between us. That's what it meant to greet each other with a holy kiss. Be able to be, be, be part of each other's lives. This was also written to a church that had Jews and Greeks in it. Jews and Gentiles poor and rich in a Corinthian culture that elevated the rich in social status and, and thought the, the poor were scum of the earth. And he says to all of them, greet each other with a holy kiss. Cross the boundaries. Accept each other. Let nothing hold you back. All the saints greet you. And finally, he ends with just a beautiful benediction of the Trinity, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And interestingly enough, this goes back to make sure we're right with God and make sure we're right with each other. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the payment on the cross for our sins, where he extends grace to us for our sin. He says, you can be right with me because I've paid the price for your sin. The love of God, because he initiated the whole process. He could have just wiped us out when we rebelled against him. But because he loved us, He had this rescue plan to send his son to die on a cross. And then the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And that has to do not only a fellowship with God, but a fellowship with each other. And it's the Holy Spirit that allows us to be in fellowship with each other. The grace of God allows us to be right with God and to combat sin. The Holy Spirit indwelling us allows us to be in fellowship with each other. He's given us what we need. Oh, Lord God, we long as a church to be right with you. We long as a church to be right with each other. Because then we are your church as you would have us. Lord, help us to be receptive to your working in our lives, to your hand of restoration. Thank you for your gift of forgiveness and reconciliation, God. In Jesus' name, amen.